My name is Stephanie Garland and I am a grammar school principal. Hello, my name is Glenn McNeil and I am an accountant. My name is Matt Pearson, I work in HR. Diana Webb and I am a manager for Nissan's finance company. My name is Sandy Sapp, I'm a credit manager. My name is Kimberly Hansley and I'm a mental health therapist. Hi, I'm Jacob Webster and I'm an insurance adjuster. Well, last week we began a study on this idea that you and I were designed to work, and uh, it's been fun over the last uh, last week and this week just to hear a little bit of what some of our people do and um, what they do during the week and uh, differing jobs uh, they have, and so we saw some of those last week and, and some just now, and as we think about uh, Work. One of the things that our goal is during this series is to help us understand that that work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a, a punishment of of sin, um, but but work instead is part of God's creative order. It is something that is good uh, and something that He made for us to do. And so this morning we want to continue to build a foundation um, where we started last week of seeing God and how God worked in the beginning and as he created the heavens and the earth, what his work was. We defined it last week. And then uh, most importantly, how he stepped back and how he valued his work and that we, as his creation, that we would value work just like he did. And we talked about that. It was so cool to hear from people uh, just during the week, just how, all right, I, I, I need to have that kind of attitude and that change where I value my work like like God valued his. And so today we're going to continue to build that foundation and, and to look at this idea of work uh, because you and I are images of God. We were created in the image of God and as image bearers, those who are to mirror our creator, how does that relate to work? Martin Luther said this, the great theologian of old, he emphasized how vocation or jobs um, are just like justification in this sense. When you think about justification, God making us right with him through Jesus Christ. He, he says this, just like justification, our vocation can be seen as God's graces, as, as God's gift to us. In fact, in vocation, Luther said that God providentially works through human beings to care for his creation and to distribute his gift. And so vocation, like justification, is a function of, of God's grace to you and I. And so contrary to what many people will believe is that some people will say, well, if you, if you work out in, in the world, you have this, sec, or this uh, secular job. They will create this divide. And those who work in the church have this sacred job. Well, here's what Luther argued, and I think this is biblically founded, is he said this, that there is no divide. Every vocation, every job is sacred. It's a divine calling. In fact, Luther contended that all legitimate forms of work, whether farming, he said, soldiering, mothering, and governing are callings from God. And I think that is a biblical grounding that he definitely had. And so some of us struggle at times. We, we think about our, our work maybe like this. We maybe ask the question, do we have a job just to have a job? Well, why am I going to 
work today. We've maybe been there before. Maybe we've had this thought before of this. We get up in the morning with our differing roles, and we maybe go into the worst workplace, and we're just thinking, I- I'm doing this just to come home with a paycheck. That's true, right? We get to bring funds home because of what our work is. But, but is that all that our job is for? And I think God would say, no, that's not what I just created work for. There, there's more to it. I, I want you to understand. And so our work and our jobs are sacred. They have a holy and divine meaning that, yes, include us being provided for. You bet. We'll see that more in the weeks to come. But they're holy. They're divine. They're sacred. You might ask the question, how are they? Um, everything is grounded um, on God's creation of this, of God creating you and I in his image. That's what makes our work sacred and holy. And so we're going to see how this morning. In Genesis 1, if you'll stay there and just here in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, um, in verse 26, listen to what Moses is. Moses is recording the narrative of the creation of the world, how God created the heavens and the earth, and how he created man. Listen to what G, uh, Moses writes about this. In Genesis 1.26, it says this, God said, let us make man in our image. And so we heard this last week. Here is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, having a divine conversation in community, in relationship, and they're communicating with one another. They're speaking with one another and saying, let us, right, capital U, it's plural, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God created nothing else in his image except you and I. That's it. That's it. You are the pinnacle of his creation. All creation displays his design, his power, and his goodness, but only human beings are made in God's image. And then it says in verse 27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then all the way to Genesis 5, verse 1, God is going to say this as well, that God created humankind. He made them in the likeness of God, of him. And so God created you and I in the image of him. That's who we are. We we are image bearers of our creator. We are mirrors of our creator. And that's significant. That's significant in so many ways. But especially when we talk about work, when we talk about the differing roles we have, because we're image bearers, all right, it impacts our vocation. It impacts what we do, how we see work as a whole, and it helps us build a theology, an understanding of work and the things we do. You see, when we look at God, when he created the heavens and the earth, we see that God works in the world, that he does that. He works in the material world, right? We also see that God works in relationship, and because we're created in his image, we have the ability to do the same. And so to see that today, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about it in four different ways as we journey through this text today. Is I want us to see the position and picture of work, all right, that you and I have and that we get. 
I want us to see the pattern uh, of work and rest and the significance of that. I want us also to see work in the terms of partnership and, and what that means and what that, how that's modeled here in Genesis 1 and 2. And then lastly, I, I want us to see a perspective, right? And, and really the, the need that we all need a perspective shift from an earthbound view, all right, of, of work to really a, a divine view, uh, a, an eternal view of work, and so a perspective shift. And so to start today, I want us to see the position that God's put us in to work and what that means, what that is, and the picture he gives us. And so as we begin today, look at Genesis one twenty six again, and then we'll get to chapter 2. But as a result, we see in Genesis, as we just learned, that being created in God's image um, it speaks to what we do as well. And so listen to Genesis 1.26. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he says something about what we are to do. He says, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Both male and female, he created them, as we said last week, how significant that is, that God created us who we are, male and female, all right? Uh, gender is not up to us, right? Gender is not up to man. It's not up to some doctor. That who is who God created us to be, male and female, all right? It's bounded in the created order. And then in verse 28, God blessed them, uh, Male and female, he blessed them, and God said to them this, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. One put it this way about what is written here in Genesis, that in regards to this rule, this dominion that we are to have. He says this, exercising, exercising this royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created man. Man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, the ultimate king, and we are expected to manage and develop and care for creation. This task includes actual physical work as well. And so our work in God's image begins first here as we see this idea uh, that we are to faithfully represent him as his image bears. This is the position that God has given us in the world. As we exercise dominion over the creative world, we do it knowing that we mirror God. Do you think about that during the day? That we mirror God, that we are created in his image. We are not the originals, but the images. And our duty is to use the original God as our pattern, not ourselves. And so our work is meant to serve God's purposes more than our own, which prevents us from domineering, to think that we're God. And so instead, we're to be those who are under him, under his sovereignty. And so look what God does in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. I want you to see this. It says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. That's a big phrase. There was no one, there was no man to cultivate the ground. 
And so what's interesting here is that God chose not to bring his creation to a close until he did something, until he created people, until he created this man to work with him and also under him. And so this is the position that God has given us. We see from the very beginning under his sovereignty is this dom- to have dominion, to have rule. This is the position he has given us. But first, I want us to see that, hey, listen, God steps back and he says, listen, okay, I- I'm going to bring these things to being, the, the, the plants and the trees and all these things, but there's no man yet to cultivate it. And so look what happens in verse 6. He's going to give this one that he creates a picture of the work that he is to do. And so as we build this foundation, listen to what happens. Verse 6, but a mist used to, uh, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is beautiful. And man became a living being. And so God creates man out of nothing. And he breathes in him and gives him life. And then it says in verse 8, listen to what happens here. So here you have man. And look at what God does. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And listen to what God does next. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so how amazing would that be? If you're Adam and God has just placed you in the garden and all of a sudden he just starts doing this work right before your eyes. I mean, wouldn't you just be blown away? Wouldn't it be like, Man, that's amazing. And so what I love, the picture here, is is the picture that that God models to Adam right here in the garden. A picture of the work that he's going to do. And so God puts man in the garden where he could be safe, where he could rest, where he could have fellowship with him above all. That's what he wants for us is fellowship with him. And his primary responsibility in the garden was to worship and to obey God. And then he was to work as well in connection to worshiping God and obeying him. We'll see the connection in just a bit. But God's going to provide for him as well. He doesn't just leave Adam on his own here. And look at what he does in verse 10. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. And so he gives water. The name of the first is Pashan. Um, it flows around the whole land of Havilah where the gold is. So he gives minerals. He gives the gold. The gold of that land is good. The, the uh, billium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gishon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. And so here you have God providing for this man and for the work and for him to enjoy and the beauty of it as well. God gives this as a grace to this man. But look what he does next in verse 15. He says, the Lord then did this. He took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to do something, to cultivate it and to keep it. And so God has given this man dominion to rule. And this is what this this rule looks like. This is what this work looks like. He says, I want you to cultivate it and I want you to 
till it, to keep it. That's the job he's to do. That word cultivate, uh, the Hebrew word is avad. It's a, it's a neat word. It means to till up the ground or to work or to serve. Uh, so this idea of cultivating. Then you have this word shamar, which is the word to keep uh, or to maintain. And so these words, they're significant. I love these words because it speaks of the, the work that we are to do as well. But these words are also used in other places throughout the Old Testament to speak of our worship of God, uh, that we are to cultivate a life of worship, that we are to keep also the Lord's commands. And so I love the use here, right? Because as we talked about last week, that we are to worship God in whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, through whatever vocation we have, the work we have, that we are to worship God. And that as we work, we keep the Lord's commands through how we work as well. And so I love the, the usage here of these words of cultivating and keeping. And so Adam is to go and to cultivate and keep the ground and to, to work it. Just as he saw God modeling that to him as he placed him in the garden. So what do we see right here? First of all, that work is essentially good. And it's a good gift from God. And so as image bearers that were created to have dominion and rule over creation, because that's what all of us were created to do, we are to cultivate and we're to keep it. We are to be workers, and it's a good gift. And so think about the implications this has. In our workplace, in our jobs, it makes us maybe ask questions like this. How would go, God go about doing our jobs? How would he do that? Have you ever thought about that? How would God go about doing the job that you do? What values would God bring to your workplace or to your work? What products would God make? You ever thought about that? Which people would God serve? What organizations would God build? What standards would God use? In what ways, as image bearers of God, should our work display the God we represent? Do we ever think about questions like that? When we finish a job, are the results such that we can say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for using me to accomplish this. You see, God desires for us to think about these things. To, to see that as we're working, we're, we're working with him. We're working under him. And that God should influence our work, what we do and how we do it, ultimately for his glory. And so he's given us this position. He's given us this picture of work. And look what happens next. I want us to see this. He gives us a pattern of work and rest. You see, when God creates us, when he creates the heavens and earth, he also creates these limits as well. And these are significant. These are another part of his grace and his um, goodness toward us. Look at Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what God does. It says, The heavens and the earth were completed in all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested, which means he enjoyed his creation, um, what he created, on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done, and then listen to what it says. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. And so here God finishes the world. 
the cosmos. It was arranged. It was ornamented. It was filled with and organized with rational being, with plants and animals, man. And now it's shown before God with this magnificent success to where in verse 31, you remember he stepped back and he said, this is very good. And then on the seventh day, what does he do here? He sits back and he satisfies He's delighted with his work. He delighted in his creation and what he had done and produced. He took pleasure in it. But I want you to see here, God is not fatigued. You know, he wasn't sitting back and wiping his brow. It's like, that's a day's work. I'm done. You know, God does not sleep, nor does he slumber. He doesn't stop working. He's constantly at work. He sustains the world by his power. He governs it by his providence. He maintains and cherishes it. But here he creates this day. He sets it apart. He blesses it as the seventh day. What we have here is what will be called later the Sabbath or the Shabbat, which it means to rest. And Moses spoke to the Israelites in Exodus 20, verse 9 through 10. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath. So here we have this, this pattern that is prescribed. We see it prescribed in the Ten Commandments. So one out of every seven days. We work six, we rest one. And God had given this as a gift. And we see here in the beginning, part of his creative order, a, a day where we're to delight in, to be satisfied in God, to find joy in him, to revere him, to worship him, to be still and know that he is our creator God and that we are not, right? And to remember that all things come from him. We are to get saturated with and by him. And so God blessed the seventh day for that alone. He sanctified it. He set it apart. He made it holy. This day is to be different. We are to be released from all other business. We're to apply our minds to the creator of the world, to focus on what is holy, God himself. And so this is a rest to be God-centered and not aimless. John Calvin said this, that spirit, this spiritual rest is the mortification of the flesh. So that the children of God should no longer live for themselves or indulge their own inclinations. It's a sacred rest that we must be dedicated to. And so, do we remember this day? Do we take time to rest? Do we take time to break away from our work? And so here's what God does. He puts a limit. He puts a limit for our good to say, oh, say, okay, put the work away. The work you've been doing, the work, put it away. And have this one day set apart where you remember me, you worship me. And that day looks different than all the other days. Where you remember that I am creator God and you are not. Remember what I have done for you and blessed you with. And that day in itself is to influence all the other days. That we have other Sabbath moments in those other six days as well where we break away and we have those times of devotion, times in the word, times of prayer. But here is this one day. And so God gives us this pattern. What I love about this is he gives us a limit, right? He gives us as a gift to you and I. And he blessed this day. Why did he bless it? So it would be a blessing to us. That it would be a day of joy for us to remember our great joy, God himself, and that we would be blessed by it.
So God's blessed us with this limit, with this day. And so here we have this pattern of, of work and rest that he gives. But then we also have this idea of partnership as well. Look at the text here. Look at Genesis 1:27. We just saw this, but it says here that God created male and female. And so if you look at the beginning here, we see that God himself is a relational God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's a relational God, and he creates you and I. And inherently, we are relational as well because of that. Remember, we're in his image. And so here he creates male and female. We are made for relationships with God and with other people as well. In fact, listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I love this verse. The Lord God said, To the man, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You see, all of God's creative works, you remember what he called them? He said good, and he said very good. And this is the first time that God pronounces something not good. So God makes a woman out of the flesh and bone of Adam himself. And when Eve arrives, you remember what Adam Said, filled of joy, in verse 23, he says, This is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You may not recognize that, but that's romantic poetry, right? After this one instance, all new people will continue to come out of the flesh of other human beings, but born by women rather than men in this case. It's an amazing scene here. Adam and Eve then embark on so close a relationship that it's called or it's said they become one flesh. And although when we read this, this may sound like purely that it's an intimate relationship, and it is, that it's simply family matter, and it is, right? I believe there's something else going on here as well. There's this working relationship as well. There's this partnership. You might be saying, "Well, well, how is that? Well, think about this. If you go back to Genesis 2.18, listen to the word that God uses with Adam. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. That term helper is amazing, by the way, amazing. It, it means partner. And so as a helper and partner, Eve will come and join Adam in working in the Garden of Eden. The word helper indicates that like Adam, she'll be tending to the garden. To be a helper means to work. To be a partner means to work with someone in relationship. And so when God calls Eve a helper here, I want you to hear this. He's not saying that she'll be inferior or Adam's inferior or that her work will be less important because it won't. That her work will be less creative because it won't. That her work will be less anything than his because it will not. That's not the point. That's not the word. The word translator helper is another beautiful Hebrew word which means azir. It's a word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. In fact, in Psalm 54.4, it says, God is my helper, using this same word. In Psalm 30.10, David says, Lord, be my helper. And so clearly this word is not a subordinate. Whatsoever. Moreover, Genesis 2.18 describes Eve not only as a helper, but also this idea of partnership. 
And so this picture of the husband and wife and their partnership, I believe as you look at this, is a beautiful picture, a beautiful pattern, a beautiful model to the world when it comes to working with others. Isn't it amazing that later Paul will use the picture of the marriage, this beautiful relationship between a husband and wife to declare the gospel. And so here, even in the creative order, this partnership, this togetherness, this, this family, this, this team, this unit, this one flesh relationship is declaring to the world this partnership that they have together in this, demi, uh, this ruling and this dominion they have over creation. So think about it this way. Think about when you do work. I know last night it was pretty cool. So, so Pierce wanted to make cookies right? Pierce wouldn't make chocolate chip cookies. Um, I, I think, I, I didn't talk to Annette about this. I, I'm thinking Pierce probably, probably could do about 75, 80%, 85% of the job. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he could do 99%. He'd probably think he could do 100% because Pierce can do everything, right? You can, can't you? No, yeah, I thought you could. Okay. Um, but uh, so, so, but I, I love that, man, there was working together, Mom was helping him make the cookies, and I've, I loved it. I love uh, other scenes where uh, Annette is making brownies with uh, the girls or, or cookies or whatever, and, and they get to do that together. I, I love, like, if I go out and do yard work, all right? I mean, I'm thinking to myself when I do yard work, I can get this done really quick if I just do it by myself and get to it. But there's something more meaningful, there's something more fuller when we do the work together, when the, when the boys come out and join me in doing the work, right? Um, how many of us like working with other people? How many of us would just like to get a job done by ourselves? I mean, if we were honest, some of us are thinking in here, there are some people I don't want to work with, right? This idea of partnership is for the birds, some of us thinking, you know, this idea of working with other people, Right? I'll never forget, there was one day, I, in, in our family, there's two of us that like eggs. And I would say the second one is a little suspect too sometimes, all right? This, they, they're just not a big fan of eggs. So I, I like eggs. And so Eliana, we're, we're working on her. She, right now, she likes eggs. I'm praying and hoping this thing doesn't change, all right? But I, I, one of the things I like about eggs, there's something she does. When I, when I pull the egg carton out of the refrigerator, it's like she's the egg whisperer. She knows eggs are about to be made. And so she will come and she will put her apron on, which she does often when she's like in play mode or, or there's some opportunity to help some kind of baking thing happen. And so she will come and she will come up next to me and, and, and we've gotten down to where she's just going to grab the eggs and, and she is the egg cracker right? She is the egg cracker. And so she'll crack the eggs. She's real good at it and stuff like that. She gets them on her hands and stuff, but it's, it's cool. It's cool. So she'll do that. But here's one of the things that I was thinking one morning, because there was one morning I was like, girl, I got to get moving, right? <laughs> but, but I thought to myself, it was so much more meaningful and fuller to do that together. It is. And that's what partnership is meant to be. And, and so relationships are essential even when it comes to work, And so here's, we, we have this picture of this partnership that he's given us here in the beginning. But we also got to remember, relationships are significant. 
It's a reality that must impact us in our places of work as well. Above all, we are called to love people we even work with, among and for. Did you know that? Sometimes it's hard, but we're called to do that. And so partnership is significant. If you don't have relationships in the workplace, okay, if you don't have these working relationships, this partnership, there is no automobile, right? There is no computer. There aren't the things that we enjoy in this world if you don't have these partnerships. They're significant. And as image bearers, we're created to work in relationship. And I think this model here that God gives us is an example of that. And so when we think of this, I want to take a step back into the home for a second. Here on this, this Mother's Day, as we think about um, God and, and the work that he's given us and the roles that he's given us, when we think about the work done in the home also, it is a partnership. Paul speaks of this in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Paul sells, tells Titus, I want you to tell um, the older women in the church to encourage the younger women in the church. Don't you love what Titus did here? He, he didn't say, or Paul didn't say, hey, tell the old women. He said the older women, right? It's a key phrase. Paul's good with words. All right, okay. He says, the older women in the church are to encourage the younger women with this, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And so God's word is not silent in regard to the priorities that he calls women to have, in particular, uh, that they should have. And so what does it say here? They're made as helpers. We've seen that in Genesis 2.18, co-workers, you could call them. Um, with the home here in Titus 2.5 as a priority, a, a place of Industry, hospitality, respite, and rest. Proverbs 31 even speaks of that as well. And so we must value, I believe, and I'll tell you why I'm saying this in just a second, the work done in the home by wives and moms, by women. It's significant. Too often in our world, here's what I see, is, is I see this, this great um, conflict or tension between women who desire to work at home, and, and, and obviously Paul tells Titus this, this is a good thing, it's a priority, and, and then the tension of working outside the home. And, and sometimes, obviously, there's a need to work outside the home, depending on the situation. And, and, and sometimes the changes in life demand that, right? Um, but sometimes there becomes this, this tension, right? It, it, or, and maybe it's not spoken, but it's, it's there, and sometimes there's pressure, uh, whether real or not expectations, but, but they're there, they're, they're present. And so one of the things that I think the Bible calls us to do is value the work done in the home by wives and moms. And so it may mean for a season that some wives work outside the home because of differing situations, and that's needed, of course, in some situations. As for the woman who stays at home, though, here's what I would say. And for the work that is done by women at home, I want you to hear this. And I think this is so significant today. For the woman who stays at home, it is not that the husband going off to his job is doing the real job because he gets paid. And that the job of working to manage the home 
is not. Did you hear me on that? Just because one goes off, the husband goes off and, and works and gets paid, doesn't mean that the work done at home is not the real job. In fact, here's what I would say, right? You have to see this as a whole, okay? You have to see it as a whole. The woman who works in the home, the mom who works in the home, this is a part of the whole. The husband who goes away to work, it's a part of the whole. And if you see it completely different, it's not biblical. It's part of a whole. It doesn't matter if this one gets the paycheck. That's not the point, right? It's part of what God created. You've got to see it as a whole, and this is significant. This is how God designed it. This is how God longed for it to be. It it is a whole as a team, as they are together, both 100% in what they're doing. This is the family partnership God creates here in the beginning, and we should value it. We should celebrate it as well. And and so I think today, here's what I want to communicate, the last thing, the fourth thing. I think this is significant for all of us, right? Right? But for all of us, and especially on Mother's Day, because I think what Mother's Day can bring sometimes is this, pressure, (laughs) right? Pain. Sometimes it's hard. It can be hard on on a few levels because maybe the loss of a mom. Maybe for some ladies who can't have children, it's especially a hard day. It's a hard day because there's so many that long for that, yet can't. And so for some, it can be a tough day. And I think sometimes there's pressures that the world puts on us, no doubt, but especially on women in our world. Labels and images based on what we do. And as those created in the image of God to work, we must make sure we have the right perspective, all of us. It's very easy to confuse what we do with who we are. As one sociologist said, most people define themselves by their job. When they retire, they need a narrative about who they are now because they've lost a sense of identity. In the beginning, I believe God was aware of this temptation to gain our identity from our work rather than from Him. It's a real one. We all, if we're honest, say, man, we battle this. We struggle with this. But as I mentioned earlier, remember God put that day of rest? He put that limit. He put that day of rest to break from the normal work we do to focus on him. And I think that was significant. He put that there for a purpose, obviously to worship him, but to cause us to remember who we are, who he is, right? And that we get our identity from him. I think he also did this because as Adam and Eve are, are enjoying the relationship with him as they're working, cultivating in the garden and all these things, there's also a reminder placed in the garden as well. Do you remember that? In Genesis 2, 16 through 17, you remember what we have? Listen to what the Lord God said to the man. He commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely eat. Die. There's a lot that we could say about this, but here's what I want you to hear. God gave Adam and Eve this freedom of choice in this moment, 
he only forbade one of all the trees, right? And he told him, he said, it, he didn't say you couldn't climb on the tree or jump on the tree, just said you couldn't eat of it. And so God's command also implies that he alone knows what is good and what is not good for us. So that famous tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, symbolizes the ability to discern good, that which advances life, that which is good for life, but it also discerns what is evil, what hinders life, what is not good for us. And so God wanted Adam and Eve to depend on him alone and nothing else, and this was a reminder of that. He wanted them to know that he loved them and that everything good comes from them, not out from him, not outside of him. He wanted them to get their identity from him and not seek to be defined by anything outside of him. And so what do we need here? We need a perspective shift when it comes to our identity. You see, there's a more important perspective shift about identity that I think Jesus offers to us. God puts it as a reminder. I believe it's here in the beginning what he's reminding us to do. I think Jesus also gives us as well. It's a familiar story that many of us know. Um, Sometimes um, this text I think is thrown around and and a lot of things. These, These ladies are given a bad rap in this scripture, but it's Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. Jesus, on this day, offered these two women, I believe, an escape from their earthbound viewpoints. Consider this perspective shift that he does on this day for these ladies. In Luke chapter 10, listen to what happens. 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said this, um, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left, let me to do all this serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, and here's the perspective shift, I believe. And this is huge. The Lord Jesus looks at Martha, uh, Martha and says, Martha, Martha, you are worried, you are bothered about so many things. But there's only one thing that's necessary. For Mary, she has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I love that. I think what we have right here is a perspective shift. There's one identity that was important and significant in the room that day that Jesus wanted to make clear. And it was the one that exists forever. And that's being a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. This is the identity we need to affirm among ourselves, not the labels that come with the kind of labor we do. As Christians, we're to be grounded in this identity, even as we add other roles and ways to express that identity in relationship to others. Jesus has promised that if we choose to sit at his feet, We have made the best choice of all. You see, we will inherit, according to what Jesus says here, the better portion. That which will never be taken away. What is that? A relationship with God, his word, the promise of eternal rewards, a life with him in heaven. 
And in one simple sentence, Jesus shifts our earthbound perspectives and takes us high above our daily lives to see the importance of this identity, of being his disciples. You see, what I love about this, this perspective shift is all we need to settle the crisis of identity. And so when we think about the differing roles we have, the jobs we have, God never intended those to define us, for us to get our identity from that. No. He wants us to get our identity from him, from him. Because we are his image bearers. And those who are in Christ, we are now children of God. We're sons and daughter, daughters of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. That's our identity. And so here's a prayer for us all today, but also for the moms in the room. I want you to hear this. And John's going to come up and lead us in worship. We're going to have a time of communion as well. But a prayer for us all, but especially moms in the room. Don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up high. And let me put a parenthesis in this. <laughs> Don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up high, even when the sink is high. That was a rhyme I just put in there. I just thought of that, right? Even when the laundry piles are high, right? Those are real. It's real. Don't fear no evil. Fix your eyes on this one truth. And here's what I want you to hear. That God is madly in love with you. Take courage. Hold on. Be strong. Remember where our help comes from. Let me pray.